Hi, everybody. How you doing? This is our Lawyers as Rainmakers panel, and we made it rain out there, so that's our uh, proof that we can do this, at least sometimes. So I'm going to do uh, a little, we'll have each member of the panel introduce themselves. I'll, I'll do a little intro, but let's start off with who are you guys? What, what are, uh, how many lawyers do we have in the audience? Okay. What about musicians? Technology entrepreneurs? Uh, all right. Any other categories we should know about? Okay. All right. So that's great. Well, I'm, I'm John Blaufer. I'm a partner in a law firm here in San Francisco called Council LLP. I was an LA music lawyer for years. We were just talking about part of, we all come out of different elements of the music business, but we are involved in very multidisciplinary cross-media uh, representation and activities now and that I think is part of what this lawyers rainmaker panel is that we're we connecting a lot of dots so let's start in with some intros here we'll start with Cindy my name is Cindy Charles I have been in the music business for probably close to 20 years I was in at Warner Music Group I was at MTV, I was the first internet lawyer there when they didn't even have a website. They had an MTV area on AOL. And then took over, oversaw MTV.com, VH1.com, Nickelodeon, it, the birth of their websites. And then MTVI was formed, which was the interactive division of MTVI, which was supposed to go public. And we actually thought we were all going to make a lot of money, and then the stock market crashed, and they disbanded it. I went back to the channel because MTV didn't really have it within themselves to support something that could have evolved into a YouTube or a MySpace and, or Vivo, frankly. And I left. I became the general counsel of a company called MusicNet, which was later rebranded MediaNet a back-end provider of digital music services, and they did the back-end for music services, including AOL, Yahoo, Microsoft, MTV, and many others. I left there two years ago, and now I'm consulting. So it's been very interesting for me going from in-house for many, many years to representing different types of clients. All right, thanks, Cindy. And now we've got Milt Olin. Milt, tell us a little about yourself. My first name is actually Milton, but uh, they never get it right on these things. So, I am practicing law in Los Angeles right now, actually more particularly in Encino, which is the San Fernando Valley. I have a firm with a guy named David Altschul, who's sort of a peer of mine, who was the general counsel of Warner Records until he left there about, I guess, 10 years ago now. Before that, I was the, well, starting out, I started out in private practice at Mitchell Silverberg and Up in Los Angeles, which was a, at the time, a really well-known music firm. From there, I went to work with one of their clients, which was A&M Records, and was there for about 14 years until it was, um, was acquired by the Universal Megla merger in 1999, and I was left with about four years left on a contract, which said that if I went to work for a competitor, I would be losing a lot of money. So I looked around and I said, well, what's out there? And the internet, you know, it's like, go forward, young man. 
So I went into the internet space. I did two things. The first thing I did was a, a company that was formed with Kleiner Perkins and Idea Lab. It was really a great start you know, for me to really get a deal with Kleiner Perkins. It was like, what's this all about? I didn't even know who they were. And that led me to get up to the valley here, and I met a bunch of people, some of whom were investing in a music startup called um, Napster. And they were having some legal problems, and so they asked me to come in and, and try to organize a, a licensing scheme that would satisfy the labels, and we tried to do that for quite some time, and, and ultimately we were unsuccessful. After that, I, I said, well, this is too much for me. I, I, wanna, I actually wanted to go back to L.A. because that's where my family was more than anything. So I moved back there, and I went to work at a firm called Manat Phelps & Phillips. I was there for about 18 months, decided a large firm practice wasn't for me, and went to work where I am now. You know, we represent high-profile artists, but we also represent some major companies, you know, publicly traded folks as well as small folks. We represent producers, managers, publishers, production companies, pretty much the, the widest gamut of stuff that's in the music space, so to speak. Thanks, Milton. Elizabeth Moody. You can call me Milt, by the way. <laughs> Just that my name is Milton. I, I'm called Milt, but my name is Milton. Hi, I'm Elizabeth oh, yeah. Moody. I head up um, partnerships for music at YouTube. So I kind of manage our, our partnerships and deal negotiations with the record labels, big and small, as well as the music publishers. And then um, work quite a bit with our product teams to bring our product forward and find new and exciting ways to bring music to consumers and artists. But although I'm not practicing law right now, I really probably couldn't be doing what I was doing if I hadn't been a lawyer before. So I started out actually working for a big white shoe law firm in New York City, representing NMPA and, and uh, Warner Music and some of the other big media companies. Spent probably about seven or eight years there and decided I want to help the little guy in the startups because this is feeling like I'm on the wrong side of the table. So I went and worked for several years for Davis Shapiro where I was working with a lot of the music startups from Napster to BitTorrent to lots of the subscription services out there today and then uh, about two and a half years ago went to YouTube. So, sort of the trajectory I was on. <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks Elizabeth. Jacqueline Sabeck. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Sabeck. I'm also a partner in a law firm in San Francisco called Oliver and Sabeck. And I started in San Francisco, went to law school here, and was working in the late 90s with a lot of digital music companies, startups at that time. And when I graduated from law school, went down and worked for a big LA law firm that happened to work with the artist Metallica and Dr. Dre on the other side of the Napster lawsuit, which was interesting, but worked down there for quite a while and then eventually made it back up to San Francisco where I have my firm now. And we work with some legacy acts and major recording artists some startups, entrepreneurs, social activists, civil rights activists, and uh, different, different work as the business is evolving and we're sort of evolving with it. All right, thanks, Jacqueline. And this will be, we can do this as a conversation between you guys and us, because we are all, we're all one here. So, uh, you know, especially Elliot, Whitney, Simi, as probing questions, please. You too, Alan. So one of the things we were talking about right before the panel was the broad roles that lawyers 
have now within, at least in the music and technology space, and maybe somewhat broader than the traditional role of lawyers in doing deals. We're finding the deals, sourcing them, putting different entities, individuals, clients, non-clients together in trying to make deals and create economic value. And that that's both become part and parcel of the job. It's made it, I think, more fun in a lot of ways, and it's a, a challenging part of that role. Cindy, you have any thoughts yeah, on so What I do now is I represent a lot of startups. I sit on advisory boards of startups who, you know, give me equity for assistance, and I also work with larger companies, but what I, I really do enjoy working with startups that can actually pay for it. And, but what I find my role is, you know, not just acting general counsel for a lot of these companies who cannot afford to have in-house counsel, but also business development. I help them raise money. And I actually, I feel like with each of these companies, I'm a part of the team. And I really, really enjoy that. And I can help them set their strategy, not just music strategy, but the finance, their financial plans, and help them, given you know my experience has been really helping startups, helping MusicNet, and because they were a back end to so many different services and a lot of very small companies, I would advise them, advise these small companies, how do we get access to music? How do we license, you know, we have a game and we wanna get sync rights or, you know, and I would offer that as part of the MusicNet services, that would be my offering to them. And, and so it came very naturally when I left to do that with these startups and really feel like I'm, you know, on the ground floor of something. So I feel like I do, you know, the legal, the actually writing deals is probably the, you know, such a small fraction of what I do relative to helping these businesses move forward. And, and I also, you know, connect them to, it's like, oh, I think, you know, your company would fit in very nicely doing, you know, some kind of partnership deal or, you know, just, or, like, I know all the record label people, it's like helping facilitate those types of relationships. So it's, it's really so much more than actual legal work. I'll throw this out to the panel. Are there any particular issues or challenges having to do with one aspect of what Cindy was just talking about, the money ask when you're helping um, a, a new company um, or maybe one that's even down the line a little bit uh, to raise money or connecting the dots um, with well, financing. I, I was going to ask Cindy. I wrote this down. I said raising money. You know, she, this is one of the things she does. How do you do that, Cindy? How do you? How are you able to raise money? Well, I just by talking to people and you know, on street corners or no, no. I mean, no, no. I'm serious. I, I'm trying. I, I try to yeah. explain. Yeah. Well, knowing some of the VCs and just introducing them to the companies that I represent. So you're talking about VC. You're not talking about high net worth individuals. You're talking no, about. I haven't. But I would like to know some high net worth. Yeah. Individuals. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so you're 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 acting as a filter then for yes. a VC and that, saying I think this is a great idea. Yeah. And when you do that, are the VCs looking for you to make a economic uh, analysis, or are they looking for deal flow? Or, I mean, how do you? I, my sense is they look for deal flow, and also because they know that I know, you know, I have a sense of the landscape that I'm not going to send them, you know, dregs. Yeah. Right. It's, it's an interesting time because I think not only are people like you, Cindy, actually advising the startups, but you're also advising the, the ca venture capital mm -hmm. firms a little bit, right? I know some of them have reached out to me looking at particular companies and asking about what's the likelihood that they're going to end up in a, you know... Lawsuit. In a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah. Or even, I was thinking right. even before that, what's the likelihood they're going to end up in 18 months or two years of negotiations with the record labels mm -hmm. and never be, you know not actually be able to launch their product for a while. I'd say that's wow. about 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's you can a quality control element, a bit of a predictive forecasting element in there as well. It's sort of analogous to the time we used to spend shopping bands. So you know, I, spend, I feel like I used to spend so much time with new artists shopping bands to A&R representatives, and now I spend some of that time shopping new, you know, a startups to the right VC partners or sometimes high net worth individuals making them making those connections and and being um, you know careful about who you select to represent and make sure that they're worth someone's time Elizabeth what are some of the differences you've seen um, from being on the um, private practice side of this game and then now being on the uh, company side? Um, on the private practice side, I certainly had um, a good sense of where, you know, where not only all the startups were, were angling towards, but where the labels were thinking about as well. Um, so I think I, I was much more, sort of in the more similar situation to where Cindy is today, where um, music services would come to me and actually ask quite a bit of advice about how to set up and structure the company before they formed it. So, you know, if we're looking at what's the, what's the rights risk assessment, what rights do I need to license, and how am I going to set up my business ac accordingly? Being in-house, in um, there, there are many of the same issues, but it sort of happens before you get to that, to that stage of actually reaching out to to licensors and content owners. And in many cases, it even, you know, our conversations internally will affect where our product's gonna go if we think we're gonna end up having a license, you know, three, year, three years worth of, to spend three years worth of time licensing because it does impact the viability of a one product. If it's gonna be something that impacts the whole service, maybe it makes sense to go and talk to the record labels for a while. If it's just gonna be, you know, one element of an application, then maybe you think about doing it a different way. I'd like to just address one thing about that. I mean, I, I don't know if this is to the right audience, but uh, you know, the, the fact is that it is very, very, very difficult to make overall licensing arrangements with labels and publishers. Um, it can happen uh, under sort of extreme heat, so to speak, or, or something going on that's beyond the norm. But you can end up with a business where you're, you're licensing content from discrete individuals with whom you want to have a relationship, you know. So, I mean, models come to mind, but, you know, it's not like you can't get rights. It's just very hard to get rights from, from the major labels and the major publishers on a blanket basis. Great. Yes. Questions? Fire, just fire them out. Oh, we have a microphone and everything. All right. 
Hi, uh, my name is Rich Goldberg. I'm here with uh, Shogo TV. Uh, thanks all for all of you being here. Elizabeth, I have a question for you. Um, so YouTube, obviously, hugely uh, valuable, uh, I would think, vis-a-vis uh, -vis your relationship with Vivo and other startups in the music space. Is there, a, I'm sure there is, what, what is the strategy uh, at YouTube relative to money? And, and how would you suggest uh, people who aren't labels can develop a relationship with YouTube um, and, and in terms of uh, making money and marketing and partnership? So YouTube, still, we still see ourselves primarily and first and foremost as a platform to make it open and available to everyone. Um, we do spend time not only with content owners but also with, you know, with third-party services, start startups that are trying to make um, a business on YouTube and give them suggestions. So it might be certainly might be worthwhile talking to somebody at YouTube about that. Um, how to use some of the the product features um, and and channel experiences to to actually make it work. It's I'm talking very generally because it depends on the nature of the particular business. Um, we're thinking first about you know the user and about being able to make money for users and artists. So. You know, we're an ad-supported platform, which makes, which actually allows for a lot of creativity because we're not forced to, to charge for every single view. Um, we are experiment experimenting with other monetization platforms. So last week or the week before, we announced that we're going to be permitting all of our partners to actually charge for access to their channel if they'd like. That means particularly, I think there's a large amount of interest outside of the music space right now and the music partners are, are looking at that and thinking about how they might be able to make it work perhaps even in you know in the live environment down the line but right now it means if you have a channel maybe it's a fan channel and you want to you want to charge access for particular content special content you can do that going forward not only, and in, in addition make money from ads okay the gentleman in the blue shirt had a question Hi, uh, Paul Dixon from Samsung. And when I think of the word rainmaker, I think of someone who brings in revenue to a small company. Um, so I know there are a lot of obstacles and strategies and things, but I was wondering if you're going to address um, the lawyer's role in generating revenue. We try sure. to charge as much as we can, <laughs> and that's the you know that's the game plan. Frankly, sometimes we'll take stock too. We can always depend on Mill to speak to the truth. <laughs> well, also, I, typically, I, I wouldn't think of bringing VC money as rain either. Right. Well, I think That's a storm. <laughs> in this world, it, it is obviously very important. But uh, I think the, I look at it also as um, how you structure the deals. A lot of these companies really don't understand what the norm is in terms of doing deals, for example, with record labels or publishers and what is standard and, and you know, and left to their own devices, it could, you know, be very problematic from a financial standpoint for them. So I view it's not generating revenue, it's, you know, not bleeding as much revenue and also knowing that the VCs um, find uh, you know, when they hear music in, you know, that the, that the startup has anything to do with music, that, you know, they find that to be an anathema because they don't want the, the, um, their 
um, their investment to go to the, you know, to the towards advances and uh, minimum revenue guarantees to the labels. So I'd say that, you know, generating revenue is trying to get the deals done as quickly as possible and get them to launch and getting deals that are um, within the range of their capability to earn out those those advances. I, I, I would think about it a little bit differently in the sense that you know, you try to connect the dots between people, right? You want to make sure that, you know, if you're Samsung, that you're talking to somebody else that you might deal with that has an app that might make sense for you or has some connection to an ads platform or, you know, whatever it is that you have. And it's, you know, the longer you do this stuff, the more people you know, the more things you have that, you know, that may work together. And, and you may take a phone call tomorrow with somebody who says, oh, I got some great thing that, you know, you attach it to this phone and it does these seven things. So in a sense, it, it really is about trying to be well-placed within a, uh, a you know, a, a, I want to say a firmament, but that's not the word I'm looking for, but well-placed within an ecosystem, I guess, where you're able to connect the dots. And that's, frankly, what's great about something like this is that you're all here and there's a lot of dots to connect between all of you. And hopefully that's part of what this uh, conference will be for everybody. And that, that was a really good question because um, as far as the definitional aspect of what is a rainmaker, when Brian sent out to us what the panel was going to be, we were all scratching our heads a little bit going, what does he want us to talk about? And Brian's a smart guy, and I think that was part of his, mm -hmm. his uh, uh, game there was to make us go, okay, what, what is this really? Um, last night, I looked up some definitions of rainmaker, and um, one was Indian medicine man causing rain by various incantations and rituals. <laughs> and I went, wow, that's kind of what we all do in our, in our various uh, ways. Um, so, we have Cindy. a question. Oh, uh, question? Yeah, um, about getting rights for a startup. I mean, aren't there enough precedents out there now between like, the deals that were made at Spotify and the, the <laughs> deals that people have at Seven Digital and iTunes. I mean, aren't there enough deals on the books where people can have a general sense of what's fair and apply that to other deals going well, forward? I think they have a sense of what can be had. I, I'm not sure you'd say that's what's fair. Uh, so yeah, if you give me $100 million, I can get you running. Just, we'll be able to do that because you know you can make a, a service like some others, but. Is it all based on advances? Because iTunes didn't, Apple didn't pay advances. Right, right, that, that's a good point, you're right. Uh, I guess it isn't, so, but, but iTunes had something else going on which was Apple behind it, right? And they were able to get, I remember we said before, things don't get done unless they're under a lot of pressure. I mean, Steve Jobs provided a lot of pressure, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, you guys better do this or else sort of thing. So, yes, it is, we do know that, you know, there's a certain wholesale price that's charged for file. And we do know that there's certain, you know, cost per stream. But you have to be well-funded to be able to get those deals done. Yeah, otherwise they sink to the bottom of the pile because all of the labels are very resource constrained. So in order to get their attention, if you come with, uh, you know, huge advances or minimum revenue guarantees, you can be assured that the deal will um, flow through. Maybe not, you know, immediately, but you'll get to a deal. But there's no established floors and ceilings, right? I mean, this isn't guesswork anymore. Um, it, well, there are new types of services all the time. So, yes, if you have a Spotify-type service, I'd say there is an established 
um, there is a precedent for exactly what the you know what the deal looks like. But for these uh, services that are coming up all the time, and I represent a few of them where it's like there is no precedent. So we're, you know, we are really digging in and trying to figure out what makes sense. And some of the pieces could be translatable, but there are others where you really just have to, you know, make it up and roll the dice. That's, and, the, that's the challenge. And that's what part of this panel is about. Because what I've learned is if you don't know, if you don't know them and you go in, you go right to the bottom of the pile. And if you, if you can call your buddy, I mean, you know, Milt, you were what? You were like inside for a long time. Sure. So if you can have someone who calls their buddy, you have a lot better chance. And they know what the things are, what the deals are. I mean, I recommend, I hate to say Milt, but I mean, all these people, they're great. I recommend all these people because in a lot of cases, what will happen is, the label won't really know what's going on with this new service. They'll see it, and especially if it's innovative, they don't know what to make of it. And they're like, friend or foe? And they go right to foe. And then they go right to the contact page. And then they go, oh, Milt Olin. Hey, Milt, tell me about this. So going with some of these folks, you could really short circuit a lot of the uncertainty that uh, you otherwise have. Thank you. Brian, I felt like we were in a Greek play and you were the deuce egg machina voice coming down from the heavens. His timing's good too. Right as we started talking about him, he walks in the room. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so uh, question over gentleman back there. Good morning. My name's Ari Good. I'm also an attorney. Um, at the risk of getting technical, um, I just had a quick question because a number of you spoke about you know making a business attractive to investors. One of the entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs last night told me that VCs and some of his investors were looking for C corps um, or wanted the company to be a C corp rather than an S corp or a closely held corporation. So just for everyone's benefit, the small businesses are usually S corps or LLCs but he said that they liked C-Corps. I was just wondering if you had a quick comment on that. Yes, they do. It's a vehicle that people understand in terms of you know, going public and having sort of uh, a, um, a structure that works. In fact, if you're serious about getting money and serious about getting VC money, eventually you're gonna have to be a C-Corp. Gentleman right here. Uh, just just to comment on what was said earlier, uh, I have found that um, one of the bigger problems is that the publishers, labels, and the laws, and you know the everything you think is normal is not keeping up with technology and what's going on out there. We're coming up with ideas, we're bringing it to them, and they're just going. I don't know what category does this fit in, and in most cases anymore, it doesn't fit in the category. <laughs> And besides, the reason for the corporate stuff is unless you've got stock, you really have nothing to trade from an equity standpoint. I find that's true. I've been frustrated with that since the late 90s, I would say. And then the, the you know, it's so expensive to do the deals with the labels that it's cost prohibitive. So they, I mean, I feel strongly that the labels are still pretty behind on technology and make it more difficult than they should for entry, so. That's my opinion. So that's why in, in uh, many cases, to the extent that you can have 
DMC, you know, you start your service as a DMCA radio service. I advise to do that to get off the ground, get the get access to content, and just because it's it's a compulsory license and you don't have to pay publishing. So it's you know it's unfortunate that on-demand streaming creates um, you know not just economics where you have to go to the label, but also you have to get mechanical rights and public performance rights, and well, you'd have to do that anyway. But anyway, yes, so I agree. So she corrected herself because what she said is you wouldn't have to go get publishing, but you, you do, of course, have yeah. PRO yes, yeah. rights, but not, but not synchronization or um, on-demand rights. Elizabeth, you looked like you had a, a thought. I, I'm just thinking how ironic it is that the minute someone wants to actually innovate and do something different, in, digi in digital music, it it's it becomes much more complicated. So it's true that you know there are there is precedent for a download service or you know even a cloud storage service, also for a subscri on demand subscription service that's priced at nine ninety nine a month in the U S. But when you want to try to do something even slightly different from that, um, even if it's just a matter of maybe merging those concepts together, it becomes much more complicated because the labels don't have a box for it. I often try to say, try to, you know, convince them it belongs in one box so that they can continue the licensing process and not think too much about it. Because not only is it a matter of getting major labels comfortable, but there's it's an entire ecosystem. And you know, I deal with video every day, which. Some argue requires a sync license and others don't. And it, but it, what it does mean is that there's no statutory license for publishing rights. So it means that I'm often finding myself be between disputes between the record labels and the publishers. Something that a digital service sort of says, well, I just want a license to you know to operate as long as my margin's not too too small, then I should be able to continue. But there's a number of issues like this developing. As we're, as the entire industry is is finding that the law is not quite keeping up with technology. Yeah, we're fitting round boxes into square holes. Even on the level of, of when you look at the vernacular, semiotics, linguistics of the terminology, uh, and talk about a mechanical license that originally that refers to player piano roles, and that so. Boy, I haven't seen too many of those around lately, but um, that is still the terminology that we use to describe the type of license that we're utilizing for, for some of these things. I think some of the best technology companies uh, take on some of the burden though. Like I really appreciate YouTube because I feel like you guys have tried to be more innovative in helping artists um, in the sense of like taking on some of the sync license burden and being transparent with some of your analytics and sort of trying to uh, trying to help where you can, you know, after you've got your platform up and running. I think there are things that technology companies with the resources can try to do to, to push the envelope a little bit more, and one of them is providing this level of transparency to to artists in particular and to you know the label smaller labels and publishers because I think that's going to. Um, it's going to show them where their money's coming from, who's listening to it, where, what demographic. It's kind of cool to see artists changing where they're actually performing now because they're seeing there's somebody in in the Philippines that totally loves my music, and there's a huge number of people listening to it. So I'm going to go over there and and perform. So I think we're 
at the same time as it's that it's frustrating that we're you know we're push we're moving ahead and the law's not keeping up there are things that the technology companies can do and everyone can do to try to push the push the envelope a little bit more and empower artists maybe so that we can have an easier time getting licenses <laughs> hopefully yeah and i think all of our you know we all feel like we do want to empower the artists and you know, try in our small way to break the stranglehold of the major labels, um, it, because you know, if the artists start uh, generating their own revenue, you know, directly, then there is a natural weakening of the system. And I think that that's really important because in order to drive innovation, there's so much going on. You know, direct to artist, uh, direct to fan. Um, innovation that I think that's naturally going to happen. It's just um, what we need is some big successes, and so then the VCs all want to participate in that. You know the herd mentality. So I think that you know we we want to see one big success, and then so so as part of the seeding of the clouds and the rainmaking, hopefully creating win-win situations as opposed to zero-sum games where all the different like structuring uh, deals, legislation, where uh, business uh, outcomes, where all the elements of the ecosystem are, are benefiting? Yeah, I mean, that's what I've been trying to do for years, you know, but when you come across the, you know, I mean, we, we created, and I think, Elizabeth, you may have been involved in this, the, um, you know, the compulsory license um, for um, under Section 115 for streaming services. And I think that that ultimately was a huge benefit to the industry and it really allowed Spotify to launch in the US and Mog and other services because we finally had certainty on what the publishing cost would be. And um, I, yeah, we're, I mean, it's just a constant effort to create a fair ecosystem, and I think you know Michael Drexler might disagree, but you know that that turned out to be a fair, all you know, one fee for public performance and mechanicals for streaming services, and we conceded that there was a mechanical in a stream in order to get that rate, and I think that that was you know you may have had good arguments, but um, it was um, it was really a, an important um, you know at least gave the services certainty, and I think what uh, I think the problem is that there still is so much uncertainty, even though there's templated deals, you know whether you can raise the money um, and pay you know to get access to a full catalog. Is it still creates a lot of uncertainty? So yes, the ecosystem, you know, which where everybody benefits would be great, but it hasn't quite happened yet. I'm I'm curious to see what's going to happen as the legacy acts um, get their rights back and have the copyrights and their masters. I'm curious to see how that looks. What those deals are going to look like, direct deals, if they'll be a lot different. I could take that. <laughs> yeah. I just I think that the the assumption that you make about the legacy artists getting their content back is is not uh, is not one that has yet played out. I mean, we really don't know what's going to happen, right? Because the reversion is is a limited one. The labels yet haven't said uh, whether or not they believe that the that a record um, 
is subject to that reversion, right? There's going to be a fight. There's going to be lots of there's going to be lots of fights about that. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Just to clarify, I'm actually talking about deals whose uh, term expire by their by their terms. Oh, okay. I'm not. Ta- I but you're right. We'll see what happens. With yeah. No. Well, the, 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 like Metallica, you know. It's well, been that's right. Yeah. End. Yeah. That's. But I would say probably there are a handful of those deals, right, where rights really do come back by contract. Um, but I guess I'm just curious, even with those handful, what, what will the artist do? What, what's the artist's perspective going to be when they have the opportunity to do those deals directly? Are I, th- they- I think they'll, be, they'll want to be treated as if they were a label on the economics. I don't think they're going to break the, the bank and say, well, we want you know, uh, 130% of what you're paying somebody else. Maybe they will. I don't know. So, uh, we probably know what they've done. Haven't they done a deal with Spotify? They did one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we could find that out. My sense is they probably just want to be treated like a label. I think that's right. I think it, they're they're expecting that they're going to be treated just like a small label yeah. that's made up of, you know, their content, right? Um, no reason they shouldn't be really when they're dealing with tech, when they're de- Although you know, you dealing argue, with digital. Although you could argue they could get more because it, the quality of their content is greater than the, the basket of rights that I get from Universal. But Yeah, assuming that's an, there is more to give. Peter would come up with that idea. Right. <laughs> Yeah, they do have, because the artists often have their own video repositories, too, that the labels have had blocking rights on. But once the, if the deals are expired, then that could free up a whole uh, treasure trove of content. Well, artists like that can can deliver not only the sound recordings, but the publishing rights, the live rights, and integrate it with merch opportunities. So there's a lot of opportunity for them to deal directly, I think with digital services instead of continuing to deal through the labels. Right. So uh, I want to ask Jackie, do you think that, you know, the artists that you represent, if they were to, um, if their rights expire, are they going to look for another major label deal or are they willing to go out on their own? And, you know, there obviously there are issues around those decisions. Right. Well, I think they, they're open to all the options and they're curious to see what all those options are going to look like, especially maybe in a few years from now. But I do think in general, the artists are more creative and more open to technology than I found the labels to be. So I'm just curious if when that opportunity arises, how, you know, how much those artists will want to work directly with technology companies. I think it's sort of an inspiring time and it might lead to some more creative ideas and opportunities. But I think the issue, it really lies with the manager because the artists themselves, oh. it's, it's difficult to manage their careers. And, you know, come, I, you know, the managers now have to be CEOs of their artists. And it's, it's a tough situation for them to be in, don't you agree? Mm-hmm. Because they have, you know, they have to source all of the opportunities. Look at all of the, you know, the, the apps where maybe, you know, there's, you know, Lady Gaga apps and, you know, different artists that, that enter into agreements and how well do those apps perform and what are the economics around it and, you know, and for an artist to do that themselves, I mean, they need a team. They need a, yeah. you know, right. business advisor. Which circles back to this lawyer's rainmaker topic that, that Brian uh, um, descended on us from, from his approach. Um, we have to also, in assessing these deals, um, have an understanding of how does the app work, what's the reach of it, um, what's the technological 
underpinnings. So it's it's become where a much broader knowledge base is necessary. I think anyway on the lawyer side than we ever used to have to have. But but just to give the labels credit where it's due, what they do do so brilliantly is sort of the the brick and mortar stuff, the packaging and the the CD, you know, the physical product releases. Where I get frustrated with them on the technology side, I have to say, like they do. You know, in certain in certain labels and certain people that are are at those companies, they do do a great job with that old school model, and you don't want to lose that. Well, radio is really where they're needed. They're still needed. Terrestrial radio, and and gigs on Letterman, and the, I don't really see beyond that since CDs are not that relevant anymore. The thing that I face in, in the circles I run in with new technology is really just one two-part question, which is, is the revenue that is generated from this new technology in addition to money I'm already making, or is it money instead of revenue I'm already making? If it's in addition to, sign me up. If it's instead of, and I'm trading dollars for pennies, then I have to look at it differently, and the people I work with look at it differently. So. Maybe you want to speak to that, because I think that the resistance is really about whether it's in addition to or instead of. If it's in addition to, it's a party. It's, it's money that we've never had before. But if it's instead of, and it's dramatically reduced instead of, then I think an argument needs to be made, why, why should somebody trade trip over dollars to pick up pennies? But part of that instead of is when entire revenue sources have disappeared, too. I mean, the the selling hard pieces of plastic was something that this entire ecosystem benefited from and had a huge spike in the 90s from uh, late 80s and 90s from as well. So it disappeared. So I would just put a caveat on the question that it's um, not just, hey, why should we take this when we used to get that? Some of the that doesn't exist anymore. So with right. the, um, anybody else got a? No, I, I wanted to mention that I totally agree with you, but you know that ship has sailed pretty much in in you know the case of on-demand streaming services as opposed to physical product. You know you had to come, you had to, as John was saying, you know we had piracy in between that. So um, so the, assume that those services are out there. But what I do when I go to the labels and I pitch new products, I do always look for the angle where it's not substitutional, not only not substitutional for a Spotify or an iTunes, but not substitution, that where it's going to grow the marketplace overall, where it's an untapped market. And so I, you know, there are, and there are many services where the labels have not figured out how to combat piracy in discrete areas, and that's, I focus on that. So I agree with you, and, and that gets their attention, too. I think a lot of this is just dependent on what the comparison point is, right? I mean, it, the, if, if you're comparing it with other digital services, that's one thing. If you're comparing it with physical, I think part of the reason we're where we're at today is because the industry was so reluctant to embrace digital for 10, 12 more years. We, we might actually be seeing subscription services much more successful today if we hadn't been making that comparison against physical for so long. Um, Cindy points out something that I think the la I think the labels are starting to embrace now as they're really looking at let's find a way of increasing the pie instead of um, 
you know, taking away from iTunes revenues or taking away from Spotify revenues. So the comparison point now is shifting more towards existing digital services as opposed to physical. Because I think I, I agree the with that. I, I don't think that the people I talk to aren't really mourning the death of CDs. Yeah. The margin on a transactional iTunes download is about the arguably after co-op costs and all the other shenanigans that was happening at retail. It's about it's about the same. So I, I don't think that anybody's really arguing about compact discs. I think a lot of that too though is is it's not so much the um, hard disk but the format of we were in a business of selling albums and now now we're not you know, we so instead of selling a fifteen dollar product, we're selling a one dollar product, and we don't sell in as much of the one dollar products as we did of the fifteen. And we're calculating the value differently. So we're we've tra traditionally been calculating it based on a per, you know, a per transaction, a per unit sale. So if you're just comparing to to iTunes or to physical, you know, there I, I think we're leaving. A, we could potentially be leaving a lot of money part of the pie on the table if we're not looking at growth in some of the subscription services and how they might integrate with live and merch and, and other models that we just are starting to look at. Yeah, there's some argument that you're not trading dollars for cents, you're trading illegal downloads for pennies. <laughs> so at least you're getting something. Um, I, don't, I don't disagree with you and I don't think that system's quite right yet, but that's better than you know free. And we don't know yet. I mean, the truth is we don't know yet whether Spotify ultimately helps or hurts. I mean, we just we don't have enough data. There's one million subscribers in the U.S. And if they had 30 million subscribers, I think that the, the net amount on 70% of growth would be like 2.5 billion dollars annually against an industry that's earning seven or eight and has lost eight billion dollars since 1999. So I, I, that's a 30 billion. That's a 30 million subscribers. So I mean, the numbers. I mean, I think that the I think that the potential is there, but the math has got to get right, and I think that that's really I mean, just looking at it, like, got to get the math right so that you can actually it's just math. Just get out a calculator, add it all up, and see what it adds up to. And if it's two and a half billion dollars versus eight billion dollars, you've got a problem. Well, <laughs> more like more money. The spinal Tap line. We've just got more sophisticated <laughs> fans. <laughs> yeah, I guess more more money generated will solve it's kind of like back referring back to the cd spike there was so much money going around a lot of these issues weren't as problematic because there was plenty and and you labels weren't partly traditionally in part because there wasn't a need to getting pieces of touring revenues and merchandising revenues and in most cases publishing revenues some of those deals started because um, it was an evolution, but a lot of it was necessity as piracy and other reasons for lack of sales started driving those revenues down. So um, I think, you know, it's more that was one of those situations where prior to that, there was a lot of money there. And so it was easier to split it up. And I think if we as we put these structures together, where we are generating more money out of the consumers and the fans, it's going to make those issues a lot easier to deal with. Can I jump in real quick? 
um, Frank Johnson from MediaNet. Uh, I wanted to see if you guys could elaborate on Cindy's comment about how to go to the labels. Um, in our business in MediaNet, we see every single day folks come to us surprisingly naive about the industry and the supply chain. We spend a lot of time helping them out and giving them the most basic guidance of getting label deals and publishing deals. But I thought it might be helpful if you could elaborate the comment you talked about, how to present to the labels, how to go to them. It's, it's definitely a relationship business, and it's not just the labels. It's the publishers now are, given what Sony's doing and Universal are doing, it's become even more complex in some ways to, to get to market. But it's, it, it would be helpful, I think, for the audience if you just talked about the most basic things that you think about when you hang the phone up from a new prospective client or somebody you bump into at one of these shows and you're scratching your head thinking, well, you guys are, you're, you're, your steps are mixed up. You've got to do, you know, you should do these three things first before you go and do these other things. It might be useful to have this, you know, maybe elaborate on what Cindy was talking about. You know, identifying your niche and helping them understand what you're doing, aligning yourself with it with a key industry, you know, like a Milt or or John or Cindy in terms of how you go to the market, things like that. Do you have any comments or suggestions? Well, uh, Frank, do you want me to speak to that? Because it was my comment. Um, Jackie, do you? Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> since it was my comment, um, well. What I think about, and I think what the is really what the labels tell you every time you're in a meeting with them, or you, you're asked questions before you show up for a meeting, what problem are you solving in the industry? That's a very key question. What are you know you know are you in the process of raising money? Are you bootstrapped? Are do you know have uh, you know what what are your projections for the next two years are you going to be profitable in the next two years um, and you know what are your needs do you need full catalog do you need um, just uh, you know or do you need sync rights do you need you know they want to know every, all of your needs so that they can then assess whether they think the business is going to be worth putting their resources against from a time perspective. And, um, and they will get, and I, I have found this now in, in the majors, there are a few people at the major labels now who actually get very, very excited about the startups and are willing to help out and move it forward if they feel that you're really solving a problem. I think you know the the two things that you said. Um, by the way, Frank, I don't know if we've ever seen each other. It's yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Uh, I think that um, what you said about them uh, wanting to know that you've got funding is really important because they've all. I mean, everybody out there, in my experience, that has an idea really believes it's a fantastic idea. And what the fuck? Don't you understand? I mean, this is going to change the world. This is fantastic. And if you're dealing with the labels and notwithstanding the excitement of the folks that you're talking about, if you don't have some sort of really good story about how you're funded and you can get through the next 18 months to two years to a place where you can be in market and be able to um, show that you have uh, the ability to, to develop a business, you're going to have a hard time getting, getting attention. So in that sense, I think you do have to have that duck and row before you go and, and, and approach people. Um, 
and yeah, you're right. What problem are you solving? Why do we want to do this? Because we don't have any resources anymore. You know, you've been out there, Mill, you look around, there's 14 desks that are empty on this one corner, right? And there's 20 more in the back there. So these guys are, are working with very, very limited resources and to get their attention and their time. Yeah, it's great to have a, a you know, a, a relationship, but that only gets you so far. So the two things are fix the idea and funding. And then how are you going to generate revenue? Yeah, well, that's the idea, though. I mean, yeah. you, presumably you're not going to get people to invest unless you're generating revenue. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, on a positive note, I, one thing I have found, though, is that once, once one label is receptive or the RIA gets on board, or, you know, there's some receptivity, that, that it kind of opens up. Well, since there's only three of them, that's really true, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it really opens up. <laughs> it, it, well, I won't say that. <laughs> I'm not sure about the RIA getting yeah, well, was, whether that matters or yeah. not. <laughs> so we're uh, we're wrapping up here. Any any final thoughts from the panel um, on this or questions from it? Dave? Do you have a yeah, question I mean, or comment? I mean, you guys are talking a lot about startup business. What about when the artist presents itself? Once upon a time, it was just the artist. There were metrics, and you would know whether you wanted to take that artist. Beyond money now, for those of you who still represent artists, which I guess at least three of you, like John, I know you've had at least one client who was just an internet, you know, YouTube sensation, but beyond money, assuming they don't have the m amount to pay the full freight, what are you looking for before deciding whether to take on an artist? And then how much of the entrepreneurial checklist are you going to go down as the lawyer to help out the team that the artist already has in terms of the manager, the agent? How much are you going to say, hey, I'm at the forefront of this, my fingers are on the pulse, I'm waiting to get paid, I'll take you on, here's what we need to do. So it's like the opposite, it's a little bit like that gentleman's question, but from the artist's perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'd say now maybe there's, well, I don't know if there's more objective data to rely on in making that decision or, or less, because we used to have more like actual sales of units data but as you know as elizabeth was was saying you know like it's, we're not just talking about like a sale of a product you have um you know sub, whether it's subscriptions or or pieces of these different revenue streams but you, st you know still intrinsically it comes down to a great degree to great music is still gonna um, conquer. It doesn't mean a lot of other serendipity, luck, hard work, drive, desperation, all those other factors have to come into place. But you still look at how great is this music and what do you believe in and how much of a chance are you willing to take on it? I, I agree. The music, for me, is a little idealistic, but the music always leads if you're talking about a band or an artist. So first the music, and then the only thing that I guess I've added um, now is not only do you have to have great music you have to be great live because you're going to need to rely on a touring income even if you become a working class band you're gonna have to be great live and i want to see you live and see that you can actually stand on stage and connect with your fans night after night you know maybe you have some bad nights but mo mostly you don't and so that's that's what i require i'm going to be the opposite i don't want to hear the music um I, it could only it can only fuck me up. Um, I want to know that you've got a team around you that is top notch. You've got a great manager. 
You've got an agent who believes in you. You've got people in your group that are sensible, that people come in and they talk and they make sense and they've got real goals, real aspirations. They've got real success already, whether it's YouTube or you know some sort of great fan base. And then I'll listen to the music and hopefully I won't be dissuaded. But, but to me, to the notion that I'm sort of an A&R guy and I can tell what's going on, Sorry. I don't think I ever had it. I certainly don't now. I, I agree with you, Mel. It's the team. You have to have the great team around you. Yeah, I mean, for, for, yeah. for me as a lawyer to pick up something and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to help you. I, mean, I, I can't do anything. You know, I can't personally. I, so, I agree. I agree with that. I, so you don't I, listen to the music either. Okay, don't, don't you think it? No, no, no. I don't agree with that. But I, I agree. <laughs> but it's the last I, part is what I'm saying. Well, I find that I usually am I'm responsible for helping put that team together. Mm-hmm. So they don't. And, and yeah, I will absolutely turn something down even if it comes to me with a great agent and a great manager if I don't believe in the music I won't work with it it's too hard even with a great team if the music's not great I won't work with it it's 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 too hard to make money even with a great team <laughs> so I have to actually believe in the music and the band all the experience you've had through your career can you see in 10 years or maybe even beyond the entire paradigm the way the record industry and publishing works changing who wants to be the visionary on this? I thing? have a perspective on it, which is, I think, yes. I, I, I certainly think, you know, I, I still like CDs because I like to have a physical product, but I never listen to them. You know, I, I, I can't recall the last time I put a CD in a changer and said, play it, you know. Um, so it's, for me, it's an archival device. I think, yeah, music will be a subscription service. It'll be on demand. It'll be everywhere. We'll pay for it some sort of out of the ether. And, you know, um, that I believe that's what will happen. And, um, yeah, it'll be some sort of subscription model, all music, all the time, anytime you want. And, and one of the things that'll be really important is, you know, curation. Curation will be the value add where in a world where you can have anything all the time, I mean, what is the thing? What's the playlist? Uh, can I tell a story about Napster real quickly? Mm-hmm. This is an incredible story about how um, how Sean Fanning really was very smart. When Napster was getting shut down, there was this idea that you couldn't, you know, the, the judges said, well, you can't, you know, you can't uh, share files anymore. You can't allow people to share files. And Sean said, well, let's, let's just have them share playlists. And I remember people coming going, what the fuck? You know, sharing playlists? What's that all about? And yet, in point of fact, that was really fucking smart because people really care more about the curation effort and the, and the playlist generation than they do about the music themselves. So it's, it was a real, real loss, frankly, that people were not listening to him when he said that. And uh, I'll never forget. It was like, what? Share playlists? So. Good point. I think we're out of time. We're out of time. Thank thank you so much. Thank you, panel. Thank you, audience. You guys are all great.